Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is a presentation of the Belly Up Sports Media Network. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic Podcast, football has undergone many changes over the years, and some positions didn't even exist. One of those positions is only 63 years old and has evolved beautifully. The tight end. You're behind the mic with Michael Neal Jr. NFL historians and lovers of sports history, welcome in. We're back. I have one full piece of paper with notes. I got stuff all around me. And uh, but we're back. It's Tuesday. We're on time. The show will drop at 6 a.m. And if you're hearing this now, then yeah, you got the show on time. So NFL historians, lovers of sports history, welcome in. This show is for you guys and gals. You already know it's it's okay. It's all right if you already know this stuff. That's cool. Don't pat yourself on the back too hard. It might break your wrist. Uh, but there's always someone else who doesn't know. The show exists. For those who don't know as much about NFL history, so we're here to do three things. That is enlighten, teach, and learn. It is the Behind the Mic Podcast presented by Billy Up Sports, Billy Up Media. Also, the Billy Up Sports Podcast Network. Go to our website, check out the merch, as well as the shows, uh, the, the writers. We have plenty of articles for you to read. They drop daily. BillUpSports.com. Go to that website, click on it, and also you can find, especially this show, as well as others on Megaphone. That's our home base. Also, the favorites Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. So, I was thinking about okay, so it's that time again. Again, I always have a list of things that I want to do, some of that stuff I want to save. For another time. And one of the things I thought about doing was who are the greatest tight ends of all time? And I said, you know what? That's a little cheesy. That's easy to do. And you can go through the list, you know, throw something together real quick. No, 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 no. But that's not what I do here. I like to dive a little bit deeper than that. And then I just thought about it. You know what? How about the evolution of the tight end? And then the more you read and look at it, you find out that there was a time when the tight end didn't exist, the evolution of a position that didn't even exist. Did you know that the tight end is only 63 years old? Not until around 1960 
Was there a tight end? You know, that they actually named that position, along with some other things. But when I went to just go to it at its base and ask the simple question, what is a tight end? Everybody that loves football, they know what the tight end is. You know, you know, it's the guy that lines up on either side of the line of scrimmage along with receivers and stuff like that. But they may get down to the two point stance or in the three point stance, you know, and they block. But they these days they catch passes. All right. They're more known for a pass catcher. They have to be multiple. You know, you look at the guys like George Kittle, uh, Travis Kelsey, you know, some of the best ones that's out there. Dawson Knox that plays for the Bills. Every time you look up, he's scoring a touchdown. It's Josh Allen's go-to guy outside of Stephon Diggs. But when you really think about it, when you go back and you look at the history of the position, it's very, very interesting. Um, where did that position come from? And there are several positions in the game of football that actually didn't exist, uh, at least to the level that we know it today. So when you go back, did you know when football first began, there were 15 players that were on both sides? Not just 22, there were 30 guys. Imagine there being 30 guys running around on the field at the same time. The center used to be called the snapback. Yeah, not the hat, man, not, not a hat, uh, a snapback. Because defenders used to be able to swipe at the ball before the snap. You know, the linemen that were what at or near zero line splits had to fire out and protect the ball from that snapback for the snapback. You know, defenders, they can swipe at the ball. You know, the ball's about to be snapped, and they go and try to slap at it. And they could do that. That was a legal thing to do. Well, that's where you get the name of guards. Those guys that lined up right next to the center, what we call the center, they are the guards. And, of course, those players beside um, those guards, the players on the outside were making a lot of tackles, those defenders. Well, hence the name on the opposite end. They're tackles as well. Well, football at the time was played mostly in an offensive formation called the T formation. Raise your hand if you remember that. You? Okay. A couple of people out there, you remember what the T formation is. And if you coach youth football, there's a lot of old school guys and some new school guys that will line their players up in a double tight end position, okay? Or they may just go with the traditional one tight end on one side and then you run double wings or they'll run, uh, you know, a single wing. These, uh, these offenses uh, were some of the first in football, not just the NFL, or in, just in football because remember, college football is older, okay? And it was derived from rugby. Rugby is where we get our game from. You know, people got tired of, you know, you know, I guess, you know, picking the ball, the big old giant white looking ball around and running around like a pillow. And even the first football looked like that. Uh, the game started evolving into what we see it today. But before it got to that point, you talk about offense, not defense. And we're going to get on some defense. I think I talk too much offense sometimes. Forgive me. But the T formation was, if you look at it, was, it's a seven-man line. That's what it was. Seven-man line. The quarterback was lined up directly behind the center. He wouldn't, didn't have his hands up under his butt. He actually, the center or snapback actually rolled the ball back to him. And the fullback, who was directly behind the center and the quarterback, was the furthest away from the line of scrimmage. He was deep. And then there were the halfbacks. They lined up on both sides, one on each side of the fullback, and they were probably like a step in front of him. Hence the word T formation, the, the T or the term T formation. So 
when you have the quarterback, that wasn't the guy that you look at as the guy that takes the step to drop back and hands the football off and and or, or throws it. No, 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 no. Quarterback actually was more of a blocker at times. Yeah, he was more of a blocker. I had a play um, that I got from the double wing offense, and it was a superpower play was what it was. So if you was going to run a sweep to the left or the right, you had the backside, backside guard. It was double tight end. Backside guard and tackle would pull. And you're, you're at like zero line splits. The um, oh God, I forget the coach's name. He's pretty famous in California, but uh, a lot of the stuff I learned, I, I got from him and then a lot of other coaches, but this was called the Super Bowl power play. The quarterback would open up, toss the football to the wing back, and he would lead, help lead black block along with the other guys that were pulling and the fullback that was behind him. And so you had elite, and you had the tight backside tight end that would cut block or, or dive block, um, in order to pretty much cut off the backside pursuit and you had about eight dudes that were pretty much blocking out in front of this guy you know and sometimes we faked it and let the quarterback keep the ball but just imagine a lot of plays like that you could not run the quarterback in between the guards or the tackles this guy had pretty much it was sweeps for the most part that's what the football was they were tossing the football left and right and it was a run game all the time and that was basically what football was back in the day and it was all run oriented all run oriented and the football uh the fullback and maybe one of the halfbacks did most of the running but then you had a lot of evolution that came from that and it became uh, a thing where you had to kind of change up formations some coaches actually went with a single wing formation and i read about notre dame they had you know where they shifted to one side or the other to kind of overload one side or the other uh, but then when you look at the players evolution when you get you know before you even get to the tight end you always have fullbacks and halfbacks right of course the fullbacks who <laughs> kind of nearly extinct you know those big burly running backs that did more blocking than carrying the football you only can name about two or three in the league right now Kyle Juszczyk is probably the most famous one um, outside you know my man for the Baltimore Ravens Patrick Ricard who's actually what a, what a 6'3", 311 pound lineman that wears a fullback's number but he can move uh, but you know now halfbacks you know you have your running backs you know that's what we call them we don't really call them halfbacks anymore they got all the shine carries and receptions as far as the passing game goes we have the 1932 NFL championship game in Clark Shaughnessy he was a, a coach back in the day to think for the changes well, before all of that, the 1932 NFL championship game actually uh, put a spin on football as a whole, especially in the NFL. The Chicago Bears and the Portsmouth Spartans. They, the Bears beat the Spartans 9-0, basically on a controversial touchdown pass that proved to be the game winner. Bronco Nagurski, he throws the touchdown pass to Red Grange. He had took the football from the quarterback, and they faked like he was going to run, and then he jumps and throws the football uh, to an open Red Grange who scores. Now, the Spartans head coach, Potsy Clark, said it was an illegal pass. Why is that? Let's go back to 1906. 40 years prior to that year, passes had been illegal. They were being thrown, but they were illegal nonetheless. Uh, but at that time, and by 1906, passes were now legal. 
not throwing a whole lot, but they were legal. But they had to be behind the line of scrimmage and either five yards either to the left or the right of the center. That was the rule. But there was a catch. <laughs> yeah, see what I did there? Incompletions were penalized if a pass was incomplete. Well, they turned the football over on downs to the other team. You, well, not on downs. You just turned the football over to the other team. But here's the thing. Unless it touched another player before it hit the ground. If it didn't touch anybody, the other team got the ball. So you can see why most coaches were not fans of throwing the football in that time. Now, going back again to the 32 championship game, the touchdown pass stood. And with that, multiple rule changes, and the most important, was that the pass could be thrown from 1933 going forward. It could be thrown anywhere from behind the line of scrimmage. Patsy Clark got overruled. He lost the game, the championship, and eventually that city lost the team. Of course, they became the Detroit Lions going forward. But anyway, Clark Shaughnessy, on the other hand, who began, you know, between him coaching, actually, between the University of Chicago and Stanford, rule changes helped him make some innovative changes to the T formation and some stuff that nobody else was doing. The guy was putting a man in motion. One of those wingbacks, he would put them in motion. And then on top of that, uh, that man in motion ended up becoming the modern day flanker, all right, or the Z receiver, the X receiver we know as the split end or, you know, a basic Y receiver. And of course, the Z receiver who's able to move in motion ends up becoming what that was coming from the flanker. So this guy had guys moving around to confuse the defense, but that wasn't all that he did. He actually helped turn the quarterback from a blocker to a passer. And this guy had put in a series of play fakes and passes to go, you know, and runs to go along with his passing attack and add to that passing attack. You could throw short, you could throw long, and this guy did not have to stay five yards left or right of the formation. So it was his counsel actually with Bears head coach George Hallis that helped the Bears defeat Washington 73 to nothing in the 1940 NFL championship game. But, you know, part of the problem with passing from 1906 going all the way up even to that point in the 1940s was that the, they didn't know how to pass block. Let's just put it like that. So when you really look at the passing, and I'm reading in, in another new book that I've had for a while but haven't cracked open a whole lot, just kind of thumbed through it. But, you know, they had some issues, you know, with throwing the football, uh, and that was because people didn't know how to pass block. You know what the pass blocking was? Pass blocking for them was not just, you know, formation wise where they kind of stuck, you know, to a degree, but the other thing was they was throwing the football and they're firing out run blocking instead. You can't run block with it's time to pass block. You got that aggressive side uh, of the offensive line firing out. And if they missed their block, well, your quarterback was tossed. You know what I mean? And then there's the other problem. I know a lot of you out there play backyard football. Did you ever play, whether it was in the street or in the grass, everybody wants the quarterback has the ball, he's going two, you know, for everybody to go out. There's no blocking, right? Everybody wants to catch a pass. That's the other thing that I read about. I had no idea. Offensive linemen not necessarily going out for a pass as eligible receivers, but they're going downfield supposedly uh, doing the interference type block. You see the guys on kickoffs or punts 
where they're supposed to be blocking and instead of hitting the guy in the back, they kind of just run by him with their hands in the air. That's the other problem. They were going out and leaving the line of scrimmage and the quarterback is just all by himself. I even read in college football where there once was a, what was it, uh, a roughing the passer penalty, but then they quickly took it away. I think it's around 1928. And they said that the quarterback was responsible for protecting his own self. <laughs> Boy, can you imagine that today? You're responsible for protecting your own self. That, obviously that wouldn't work to, today, but so many people would be so happy. They really would. But um, eventually, you know, not only did some of the, these passing rules help things, but it was Paul Brown who developed what was called the cup system. The cup system was where he had linemen doing what they do today. They kind of give a little bit of ground and help set up. And these guys are forming that cup for the quarterback to stay in the pocket and throw a pass after a three, a five or a seven straight uh, step drop. And that was something, obviously, that was going to be a whole lot more um, uh, effective when it comes to throwing the football. And then I, I know, remember, I do remember from 75 se seasons that the offensive linemen legendarily for the Cleveland Browns at the time in the 40s, they would chant, nobody touches Graham, talking about Otto Graham, break, you know. And so, I mean, Graham's in the Hall of Fame for a reason, and he was a pretty good passer. If you ask Peter King, Peter King would tell you that Otto Graham is the greatest quarterback of all time. So, I mean, there's that. But eventually receivers, position changes too, okay? Eventually receivers, you know, they were called ends at the time. And they were the ones who were catching all the passes. I mean, let's just be real. They were standing on the end. You have a split end because you know, that guy ended up being on the line of scrimmage, but they pushed him out on the end. They split him out, okay? And you got the flanker who can motion left or right or just stay on one side of the formation, off the line of scrimmage, free to move, right? And then you have, you know, those guys catching all the passes outside of the former laterals that were going to halfbacks. Further innovation uh, was that they kept undersized linemen in as blockers, but not necessarily as receivers. Going into the 1950s, Paul Brown, as well as George Hallis, they started to see things a little bit differently and they started instituting these things that we like to call today tight ends. I was looking on Pro Football Reference to see when the first mention of a tight end actually was, the, the actually caught passes was actually listed. And so you have to fast forward, you have to actually go to 1960. Now, we all know the AFL that came, uh, came into the fold. And when I went to the AFL part of Pro Football Reference, they had as many, I think, I think it was like six or seven that were listed as tight ends. They weren't catching a lot of passes, but they were tight ends nonetheless. And everybody knows, if you know your history, the AFL of the 1960s, they threw the football. Of course, it was all the receivers that were catching most of these passes. But when I went to the NFL, there were only two. And I think it's actually pretty remarkable to see who these two guys were, one of them more than the other. So yeah, there were six guys listed as a tight end um, at one point. And the NFL only had two. two. Six in the AFL, two in the NFL. One of them was Cleveland's Leon Clark. And the other played for the Chicago Bears named Willard, I hope I say his last name right, Duvial. All right, so this guy actually in 1960 caught 43 passes for 804 yards, an 18-yard average, and had five touchdowns. That's 
those are good numbers even for that day as a wide receiver, not just a tight end. And Willard Duval, he actually came from the CFL, played for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in 1958 before signing in 1959 to play with the Chicago Bears. He only stayed there for two years. This guy was 6'4", 224 pounds. It's almost like Megatron, right? You know, Megatron, what, he was 6'4", probably more like, what, 230, you know? But, and could run, and we know what Megatron was, okay? Um, but he played a total of six years as a pro, and those two years in Chicago. And in 61, Duvall was the first player to switch leagues. No one left the NFL to go to the AFL, which was the upstart league. And he left to go join the Houston Oilers, who had just won the championship. Uh, and he was replaced by someone uh, who you know very well. And he was a Hall of Famer as well. Uh, well, Duvall was not a Hall of Fame player. But in 1961, in the NFL draft, the first modern pass-catching tight end ever was Mike Dicker. Uh, but if you go to that and you look at his numbers, Dicker was rookie of the year and an all pro 56 catches and he was the first ever tight end to go over a thousand yards he had a thousand and seventy six he averaged 19.2 yards per catch and scored 12 times so yeah was that an upgrade from willard yes it was you know two and he finished his career hall of fame career not just as you know a super Bowl winning coach head coach but all and an assistant coach he was a two-time first-team All-Pro and a five-time Pro Bowler and was inducted into Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1988 for a good reason. Dicka, Iron Mike, was the first modern-day tight end in NFL history. Um, but if you fast-forward two more years, in 1963, there were eight tight ends taken in the 63 NFL draft, two of which are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. That's when John Mackey was drafted by the Baltimore Colts in the second round, and Jackie Smith was actually drafted way down in the 10th round uh, that same year by the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, there were other dependable tight ends that came into the league, and they were primarily blockers first, then receivers, okay? Uh, if, if that, okay? You had two other Hall of Famers that played primarily between the late 60s and throughout most of the 70s. You had guys like Charlie Sanders of the Detroit Lions, and also Oakland Raiders, Dave Casper, who converted, you know, from a Notre Dame offensive tackle to playing tight end. Both players, again, in the Hall of Fame. Then you had guys also played in the 70s, tight ends such as Denver Broncos. He, they had Riley Odoms, who was a two-time first-team All-Pro and a four-time Pro Bowler. And then you had Washington's Jerry Smith, who caught more than 400 passes in his career and 60 touchdowns. He was a first-team All-Pro and also made the Pro Bowl twice. Now, they weren't like record-breaking guys, but in the 70s, you know what the rules were. Defensive backs could put their hands on you, but after 77, going into 78, they changed the rules. Offensive linemen could open their hands and extend their arms. And then defensive backs, that was the first time that you can't put your hands on a receiver past five yards. So it made things a little bit you know, more interesting for the defense. Jerry Smith, another tight end, was one of the few early guys to have a thousand yards receiving along with Mike Dick if you go back to the 60s. And it's to be noted that the Eagles had a receiver by the name of Pete Ratsliff. Now, Philadelphia Eagles fans should know this guy. 
He switched to tight end in 1963 after playing his first seven years as an end or a wide receiver. And he made the Pro Bowl twice as a receiver before this. He made it three times in a row as a tight end in 63, 64, and 65. And that 65 season proved to be his lone all-pro year, and he had over 1,100 yards receiving that year. So you have some other guys that you may or may not have heard of that were starting to show you the trend of what was beginning. I mean, and it was early. Again, this is 1965 that at this point right now that I'm talking about right now. You had a couple guys at tight end that were thousand yard receivers not saying that there were a whole lot of guys being drafted left and right but you can count on one hand you know some of the good ones but at the same time what they were doing was innovative and the coaches that were actually you know coaching these guys up and installing these plays you had route trees that were beginning to develop way back in the day for wide receivers and then you had to have a separate route tree for tight ends who primarily lined up next next to the left or the right tackle and they were down in a three-point stance for the most part well if you go like i said back into the 70s towards the end of that especially to the, the, during the like the second year after the change in 1979 one of the premier tight ends in nfl history we think of a more of a receiver than a blocker and that was kellen winslow senior the hall of famer three-time first-team All-Pro, five-time Pro Bowler, all of that stuff made the Hall of Fame. He led the NFL in, in receptions. I think this was a first in 1980 and 1981. And unlike most tight ends, Don Coryell, Air Coryell, the head coach of San Diego, had Winslow actually line up all over the field. He lined him up as a receiver in the slot, anywhere that he could in order to get him the football along with the likes of guys like Chuck Muncie and, and John Jefferson and Charlie Joyner. I mean, they were throwing the football to the running backs as well as the receivers. And they, they had that combo, the first combo ever to have two receivers and a tight end, well, just three receivers with a thousand yards. You know, that right there is something uh, that was just not something that was heard of, right? And it's also to be noted, one of those tight ends, you know, they did not automatically line up in a three-point stance. They were used to that. And he was upright in the two-point stance. I ain't talking about that three-point stance. I couldn't stand seeing that in old NFL films. A wide receiver all the way out there towards the sideline. And he's lined up in the three-point stance. For what? You know what I mean? <laughs> no wonder they can get their hands on you so well. But in the 1980s, there were more 1,000-yard guys. More 1,000-yard tight ends. They were starting to throw the football a little bit more. But, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, and even some 90s football was still primarily running. Um, but... Go back into the 80s, yeah, guys like Ozzie Newsome uh, of Cleveland, Hall of Famer, Joe Sensor of the Vikings, Mark Bavaro, one of my favorites for the Giants, and also the Raiders, Todd Christensen, who twice, who had over 90 catches in the 80s. Nobody was doing that yet. His, well, no tight end anyway. His 95 catches in 86 was an NFL record that stood for about eight years. But then you go into the 90s, that produced players like Ben Coates, who broke Christensen's record by one. He caught 96 uh, in 1994. And then you had guys like Jay Novacek in Dallas. And you know these names if you're a football fan. Keith Jackson of the Eagles and later of the Packers. Brent Jones with San Francisco. Frank Wycheck, guys around here know him uh, with the Oilers and Titans. Eric Green for the Steelers. Steve Jordan of the Vikings. And perhaps the greatest of the 90s heading into the 2000s uh, was the tight end, the first go over. 10,000 yards receiving 
for his career. Yes, Uncle Shay Shay, Shannon Sharp. Uh, and at this moment, um, I, I really, you know, you have to think about how some of the size proportions has changed. Some of them haven't. John Mackey was 6'2", and he weighed only 224 pounds. Mike Dicker, 6'3", 228 pounds. Jackie Smith, 6'4", 235. A little bit more meat on his bones. But Kellen Winslow, he was bigger than all of them, but he had more speed he could run. Kellen Winslow was 6'5", 250 pounds, and was an athlete, much like Shannon Sharp, who was a, you know, he was sliced even back then, and as athletic a tight end as you would find. And Sharp, you know, he's 6'2", 228 pounds. And he was a, a precise route runner, uh, salt hands, and like I said, an athlete that could catch the football and do something with it afterwards. Not catch the football and get tackled or fall down. No, no, no. That's That wasn't Kellen Winslow. That wasn't Shannon Sharp. Okay? And even John Mackey was a guy that would put his palm in his hand and bless you right on your forehead and he was pretty good after the catch but more and more the passing game became a bigger part of nfl offenses throughout the 80s runs like i said they still dominated but as you move through the late 90s and through the 2000s tight ends at both college and the pros not only are they big that's all they also can run and move just as much as a wide receiver can some of them just as fast as a wide receiver but not all these guys were as as athletic. So, but they were dependable tight ends that could block as well as they could catch. I right, think about guys like Heath Miller who played for Pittsburgh all those years, Dallas Clark with the Colts, Jason Witten and you know for the Cowboys, uh, Mark Chamura. He was Chewy was one of my favorite players to watch uh, for the Packers, and then Cal Rudolph. Some of my receiving tight end favorites: Jimmy Graham, Greg Olson, Russ Francis when he was with the. Patriots as well as the 49ers, Bob Trumpy for the, the Bengals, Jeremy Shockey, loved watching him in college, you know, as well as the Giants. Uh, and then Vernon Davis, you know, he's he's a big time receiver, uh, receiving tight end, and the guy could block as well. And he was pretty athletic. Then there are the guys who may be on their way to Canton one day. Rob Kronkowski, one of the biggest tight ends you would ever see in league history that can actually produce as a receiver, not just a blocker. If you put a 6'6", 265-pound guy in in the days of the 50s and 40s and 60s, he would be on the offensive line. But Gronk, 6'6", 265, is a receiving tight end and a dominant blocker to do both. He's going to be in the Hall of Fame. It's only a matter of time. The defining moment for me with him is one that I absolutely hate. The Patriots were playing my Pittsburgh Steelers. I believe it was Sunday night football for the umpteen time. Gronk goes up, snatches the touchdown in like the right corner of the end zone. And he points down at the defensive back. Don't even remember the guy's name. Not even worth remembering right now. And he literally belly laughs at this guy for trying to cover him, throwing his head back and everything. What can you do? The guy's 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, and can jump and catch the football, even though he's got all this crap on his arms because of his elbows. But he can run and he can jump and he can catch and he can run after the catch too. That was Gronk. Gronk is just so huge. There's nothing you can do. Antonio Gates, he was built like that too. He was 6'4", 255, but he caught what, 955 passes for his career and over 11,000 yards, third most in league history. Uh, NFL tight end record, 116 touchdown passes. You see how things have changed over the years. 
Sorry, that's my microphone squeaking. Um, you know, with the San Diego Chargers, he'll be in Canton one day. You know, he knew how to use that 6'4", 250-pound basketball player body, right? J a small uh, power forward, by the way. <laughs> Jason Witten, he had over 13,000 yards in his career playing 17 years, and he was the epitome of catching passes over the middle and picking up first downs as a traditional tight end uh, could, right? Travis Kelsey is another one of those big boys that still plays today. 6'5", 256. All right. I'm not sure if he'll break receptions, records, or any of that. He's like at 814 for his career. He's already played 10 years. I'm pretty sure he'll pass Antonio Gates on the yards uh, list. He'll be third. And he's already over 10,000 yards. But perhaps the greatest tight end of all, all time, of course, he's already in Canton. Another former basketball player, Tony Gonzalez. He's the Jerry Rice of tight ends. 1,325 receptions. I don't think anybody's going to ever break that. I'm, I'm just, I'm pretty sure of that right now. If they do, they do. You know, I'll gladly be wrong, but I don't see it right now. Um, 15,127 yards receiving and 111 receiving touchdowns. He's the greatest tight end of all time. He's the greatest receiving tight end of all time. There, there, there is no one greater in my opinion. I'm sorry. You know, I know he played, you know, for some teams that were, uh, average to being you know playoff you know uh, or edge of playoff level he never went to a Super Bowl or any of that stuff but I mean he as an individual that's the reason why he's in the Hall of Fame period and it's been 63 years since the tight end position was created and there are only nine tight ends in the history of the NFL that are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame we talked about all of them we've mentioned them at some point Dave Casper Mike Dicker, Tony Gonzalez, John Mackey, Ozzie Newsom, Charlie Sanders, Shannon Sharp, Jackie Smith, and Kellen Winslow. Gronk, Antonio Gates, Kelsey, Witten. I think that they will join them one day. I can't wait to see what some of the other guys that are the elite guys today, like Mark Andrews, George Kittle, will continue to do. And then you got the other guys that are a little bit younger, the Dallas Goddards, TJ Hawkinsons, uh, Pat Fairmuth. Uh, Cal Pitts, Dawson Knox. I want to see what they do by the end of their careers. You know, so it's very, very exciting to me. But you see a, a position that did not exist and how coaches and players, the schemes and how it has evolved into what it is today. <laughs> there was no tight end. And now you got some guys that's about as big as the linemen as they would have been that are just as athletic and as great a wide receivers as a wide receiver could be. It's amazing. That's it. References. Thanks to ProFootballReference.com, StatMuse.com, also ProFootballHallOfFame.com, AthlonSports.com. This was an article written by J.P. Scott, March 1st, 2021. The 25 greatest tight ends in NFL history. Also two books, How Football Became Football. 150 years of the game's evolution this is a really good book this one was written by timothy p brown and also again you know my favorite book america's game the nfl at 100 this was co-written by jerry rice and randy o williams this has been the behind the mic podcast i am your host michael neal jr this show is presented by belly up sports belly up media belly up sports podcast network again go to the website bellyupsports.com click on it check out the shows the 
check out the articles, all of that. And you catch my show, especially, and all the others on our home base of Megaphone. Also, the favorites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. Tell all your friends and family about the show. We'll see you next week. And if you're not listening, I will find your house. I'm out. I'm out.